This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit JiffyLube.com. Welcome to another episode of the Andy Good Suite, and today I'm delighted to be joined by an ex-teammate of mine, a man that played for Leicester Tigers for nearly 10 years, over 150 games to the club. He then decided to go the wrong way and go to one of our rivals, Bath. He played there for a couple of years, and then he embarked on a pretty impressive coaching career that has led him to be the current head coach of Leicester's nearest and dearest rivals, Northampton Saints. I'm joined by Sam Vesti, ladies and gentlemen. Sam, how are you, pal? I'm good, thanks, Goody. I can't believe you're giving me abuse for going to a different team. That is... Um... You are right. I have more clubs than I've had hot dinners. No, that's a lie. I've had a lot of hot dinners in my time. Um, how's things, mate? Obviously, head coach Northampton, we're going to get into the nitty-gritty of your career from playing to coaching. But currently, things are going okay at Northampton. Obviously, first year as head coach since Chris Boyd moved on and you all stepped up a, a level each. Are you enjoying being the gaffer? Yeah, it's um, different. Some new challenges, but... Ultimately, I'm enjoying it. I think performances would like to be a bit more consistent. I love working with Dallas as well as he's taken over the, the sort of proper DORE bit and uh, I'm more on the field and looking after that side of it. Good stuff. Now let's get back into your career because we played together for a decent chunk of time at Leicester, probably about six or seven years in the glory days of Leicester Tigers. And you were a young man coming in, playing fullback, playing fly half, playing centre. And one of my favourite memories of you was under Marcelo Lafreda. I'm now looking at you as a head coach. So effectively, you're the same level as Marcel Lafreda. And he said to you, he's like, Sam, you are a dad with three children. How are you so immature? Why are you so silly, Sam? <laughs> yeah. Why are you so yeah. silly? You have three kids, no? <laughs> yeah. So look back on those days. I mean, obviously, you had some amazing memories in a Tiger shirt, some funny memories, some ups and downs. But give us a, a, a sort of retake on, on your career there because it was, it was pretty impressive. And you went through the highs and the lows, right? Well, yeah, absolutely. I think, to be honest, I was a very fortunate to be at a, such a good club with, to be involved with such a good group. And you sort of take it for granted a little bit because it's the only thing, like your tackle practice, tackling where you try and grab someone around the legs, Goody. Is that what it is? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, tackle, your tackle practice was with, you know, Neil Back, Austin Healy, Freddie Tuolaghi. You just got used to tackling Martin Johnson you didn't really think anything of it. Avoid that. 
but it sort of just became what it was. So you didn't sort of, it wasn't a big thing. It's just what it was. And I think I was so fortunate to be in that group. They were such a driven group, weren't they? And they knew exactly what they wanted and it was such a, a great place to learn. I think I was very fortunate to be involved in that. And, you know, it just makes you try really hard. And ultimately I was, you know, you know me, good. I wasn't exactly much of an athlete, but I did try quite hard and sort of, just got dragged up there, really. And it was such a fantastic thing to be involved with. You must have enjoyed it as well. Mate, I loved it. It was, yeah, it was a great club. But you, you do yourself a disservice there because you say you weren't much of an athlete. I got nicknamed the milk truck. You didn't have rapid gas, but you, you could go to the cow sheds and back on repeat, but just not very quickly like my good self. You're obviously coaching now. Let's talk about the coaches that you had at Leicester. Pat Howard, who I'm sure you learned a hell of a lot from and, and probably take a lot from that those days now into your own coaching. Uh, Marcelo Lafreda was in there as well, Richard Cockerell, Heineken Mayer, there's a few others. What have you taken from from each one and who are your favourite coaches out of that bunch? I think Paddy Howard was probably the biggest influence, pretty sort of relaxed on the pitch, just knew what he was and I, I really enjoyed working with him. There's elements I learned from all of those other coaches as well and, you know, you learn from the, the good stuff but you also learn from what you don't want to do as well and what you don't want to be and try to pick up as you don't I didn't try and pick up as much as I could on the way there but you sort of you just do don't you and certain things about man management that I would perhaps try to not do and elements that I would absolutely try and keep I mean there are certain bits of that I will take from Cockers onto the training pitch every day but not everything I mean I couldn't be the type of coach that Cockers is it just wouldn't wouldn't work but also he has an intensity around him that I do try and take onto the pitch Again, we were privileged. I thought Paddy was was excellent and um, really got us as a backline, trusting ourselves, believing in ourselves, and there was some uh, there was some good stuff happened. You mentioned Cockers then and how he coaches, and some of it's great, some of it perhaps you don't take. Is there a learning in there that when he sent players home from training, he sent me home from training because I refused to contact because my neck was fucked <laughs> and we had a bit of a row. Have you ever sent anyone home from training yet? That's what I want to know because Cockers did. I've sent them off the pitch. Yes, but not not home. <laughs> I think I'm I'm quite a chilled, relaxed sort of guy, but I'm not sure that everyone would say that, to be honest. But you've got to have sort of boundaries and lines as well, haven't you? And I think the guys hopefully know where they are with me. I once got sent home from um, training to, and you definitely didn't get this, by White, Craig White. Really? <laughs> to go to McDonald's. Yeah, I remember Because I was, I was always very light or trying to keep weight on. And he said, you look knackered. I was like, yeah, I really do. Go down the road and get a McDonald's. <laughs> there was you and Tom Croft, and I remember the day that Crofty just came in and wafted a Big Mac over my nose as I was on the physio bed, and I fucking hate him for it ever since, and I still hate him now because of it, even though we're back in the fold at Leicester working on match days. Let's talk about the glory days at Leicester because, you know, the bus trips, the the scrapping, everything that went with it, it's a tough environment. And like you said, you're a head coach now, you learn some things along the way that are good, you learn some things that perhaps aren't, you know, right for every environment. That Leicester environment on the bus on the way back, a few brawls. You must have had a go at take the back seat a few times and had your pants over your head. Yeah, been there. I remember one time the table got ripped off its legs, so we were all scrapping, and there's just four metal posts <laughs> like that. Yeah, that was brutal. That really was brutal. You can't. I don't think anyone will ever. However, you describe it, it will never be as brutal as it actually was. My technique on that was. I was usually one of the first couple up, say, Academy boys, go for it, right? I was usually one of them. I was always keen to do stuff like that. Usually somewhere just behind Harry. My plan was always to go and find 
Jono, and you dive on Jono because... What are you thinking? My, my thoughts my, my thoughts there are, he's lunatic on the pitch, or not a lunatic, but he's got he's in control of himself. So he knows we're on a bus. He's going to hit you, he's going to hurt you, but he's not going to properly damage you. Whereas some of those other nut jobs, flipping heck. Do you remember? I remember Backy um, smacking um, Cabbage. Oh. <laughs> there was a bit extra in that punch as well for Cabbage. There definitely was. Cosa and Jimbo. Does Jimbo tell that story? Yeah. Yes, he does. The final. Yeah, that he does. He ends up in prison that night as well. Oh, was that that night? In the police cells for scrapping yeah. with Sarah Rambini. Yeah, oh, Bliminetti. Yeah, that was that night, was it? Yeah. Well, that started well because I reckon they were scrapping before we'd left Twickenham. <laughs> Honestly, I think before the gates had gone and then obviously that night didn't finish as a... Next day was good, though. Next day was good fun. Let's talk about leaving Leicester then because obviously you left Leicester and went down to Bath and were pretty successful down at Bath as well, obviously, as a player towards the end of your career. What made you go to Bath and leave Leicester? Was it opportunity to play more? Was it a different coach? How did that come about? Because you're a Leicester lad through and through, obviously, the history of your father, your grandparents as well playing for the club, your fourth generation Leicester Tiger. What, what made you go to the enemy? I didn't get offered a contract. There you go. Well, I didn't get offered a contract until it was really too late. And by that time, I'd basically said I was going. I was playing quite well. Got a cap for England, going well. But then that summer, tore my hamstring off the bone and I went from the milk truck to, I mean, what's slower than a milk truck? Um, <laughs> just, just yourself on crutches, right? Yeah, pretty much. And I think I tried to come back and I struggled to come back and there were some changes at the top. And it just it just didn't work out. And, you know, with all the contract renewals, often it just comes down to timings and who's going well at the time and who's actually coming into the squad at the time, who's younger, you know, all those little things. And it wasn't didn't quite work. I didn't get offered anything at Leicester because of that, really. And then Bath came. And, you know, I've been there for... A good while and it was a, a good opportunity to go and do something else with my young family and experience something different and it was so different it was I remember Bath prided themselves on being the most professional amateur club but I they were not the most professional professional club when I went there that they were on a for, to go from Leicester that was that environment that you've just we've just been talking about to a very different, a very different environment. And I loved it. I loved it for about four months. And then it went, <laughs> why aren't we winning that scrum? <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's a good environment. You know, then it get, became a bit frustrating, but I loved my time down there as well. Great people, great place to live. It was literally polar opposites to what Leicester was at the time. And then obviously retiring at Bath as well, coming to the end of your career. Just talk to us about, what it was like down there. You're a Leicester lad through and through, right? Or Hinkley, John Cleveland College. You'd played at Leicester for many years. You moved down to Bath. You enjoy it. Yeah, the lifestyle is very different. It's a different sort of city and yeah, that brings its benefits. What happened at the end of your career in terms of retirement and how you then transition into the next phase of your life? I was still playing okay, but I was, I probably wasn't as athletic as I was. And I was only 31. You talked to me, I played till 36 with a you know. Know, overweight like you wouldn't believe, but carry on. Yeah, but Goody, you you were a bit of an anomaly, really. And actually, you were very much in a decision-making position. Though you, didn't exa- you never really relied on your athleticism, did you, to be a good rugby player? You relied on lots of other things. A brain. A brain and a boot, that was about it. But actually, I, I wasn't quite that guy. I, you know, I had to rely a little bit on my 
physicality and my competitiveness and my a little bit of athleticism and when that goes it's fripping it's really tough and I think I probably was on you know I was on the way down certainly and I could have gone and played at a lower level and I think I probably would have but I got such a good opportunity to start a coaching career or job and I sort of thought that's the future for my young family at the time and I thought it's a better a better chance for me to get into that. And I went to Worcester. I met with um, Carl Hogg and Dean Ryan, got the academy job there, and it was brilliant. It was really good. How did you find those first steps into coaching the academy? Is it a good kind of level to do you know, the academy stuff, which isn't the high-pressure first 15? It's more about developing players than going into straight away, you know, assistant coach or a backs coach of, a, of the first 15 because you still probably want to play a bit yourself and think you can do it more so than some of the boys that you're coaching? Because I'm sure that's a coach's frustration as well at times, a young coach's frustration. I think maybe it is. I think it's a great job. That academy development role was really, really good. I loved it. What I really enjoy, what really floats my boat since playing is helping someone to be better. And it can be the smallest of little things, but... You know, you've talked about it, you've practiced it, you've tried to get it into some training. And then suddenly they go, these young kids go on and do some of these things that you're talking about and they can see an improvement. I just love that. That's absolutely what floats my boat. So I had a really easy transition and I know loads and loads of people don't. And it's a really tough time for a lot of people. And I think there were, there were tough times where I thought, Flip, I used to be this rugby player, and now I'm, you know, that's hard to take. But ultimately, I still had something to really get my teeth into. I still also had that camaraderie around a rugby pitch that I think a lot of people miss if they go into a different line of work. But yeah, and that that job, oh, what a job that is. Watching, helping young kids who are just absolute sponges to be better at rugby is, yeah, it's what I did it for. Well, still what I do it for, to be honest. Yeah, uh, and people look at sort of academy coaches, and, and unless you see the work that goes into it, you're obviously up and down the county around Worcestershire and in the area that you're in watching school games and all that stuff. And in terms of going from being a professional rugby player, where sometimes you have a day off, sometimes you knock off at three o'clock, sometimes you knock off at five o'clock if you're in fat club like myself, you know, always training, becoming a coach with a young family like that. And I looked at it towards the end of my career and thought, that's not for me because they work so hard. They do all the hours that God sends in terms of watching games, watching people, going to visit people. How hard did you find that? Or was it something that you just thought, that's part of the job, I've got to get on with it and I love doing it? I just jumped in straight away and sort of just took it all on board. So I was doing everything and sort of didn't realise that I was working a lot. And then at some point I was like, flipping it, this is full on. But I'm loving it. And then it just becomes what you do. I think there's a bit of a, a sort of a myth out there where you have to be in at 5.30 in the morning. You have to be the last one to leave. And I, I just don't buy into that. You have to, More is not better. Better is better. And I think that was sort of a bit of my philosophy. And it is, it is long hours. It is a lot of watching rugby. It's a lot of those things. But I also really try not to subscribe to that whole, you know, racing people in sort of early in the morning thing. My motto is less is more, but, you know, obviously, I'm not sure you can have that as a coach. Uh, and then, obviously, you go into coaching the first team at Worcester as backs and attack coach. That the this kind of upgrade, I suppose, or the movement from, from academy up to Worcester in the first team? I basically looked after the backs initially. I think I was a year in the, the academy 
a transition job as well. Yeah, I think I got it for six. We were sixth months. I got it at Christmas time. And it was the year that we were relegated. So Worcester were in the championship trying to get into the Prem. And it was a great learning ground for me. So we were going to Mosley. We were going to... Um, we we're going all over the country into. Oh, I know about that, clubs. my friend. I did that role myself for a year as a player. Yeah, great time. But then it was all sort of we were going. We were winning these games. We were. We should be winning these games. We were winning them, and then it came crunch time where actually those games and you've played some big games, Goody. But those games, have you done? Um, have you done games to go up? Yeah. yeah, they are full. They are full on squeaky bum time, aren't they? We we nearly lost to Bedford in the semi final. We scored with about two minutes to go to win it, and we'd have all got sacked. You're literally rather than playing for silverware that you put on your thing. You're actually playing for people's careers, and like the analysts' career, the SNC guys' career. So there's so much pressure on those games, and that that was cool. That was really good, and that's the one where Worcester we played Bristol, and the first game Ryan Lamb. was a draw. Lamb, yeah, exactly. Chris scored the try and then Lammy knocked it over. That was that year. That was unbelievable. I think we were losing by 13 points with seven minutes to go or something. Yeah, I remember that actually. I was in Dubai having a flick online watching it and I saw Lammy's kick go over and I was jumping for joy because obviously I'm my next Worcester player. Obviously coaching the Premiership, was that a bit of a, a shock from winning all the games in the Champo, being under that pressure environment to then being in the Prem at the tough end of the league? Do you know what? In a, in a way, I, I think that Dean and the way he was running it then, he took a lot of pressure off me. And I think my mindset was pretty much, look, we're going to be struggling to win loads of games here, but we can just focus on performing and doing our bits how we want to do them and, you know, review on that basis. Now, I'm sure lots of coaches have said that in the past, and then as soon as you lose three on the trot, it's like, you know, but really trying to stick to that as a, as a measuring tool of are we actually get, getting better and we did pretty well we got some good finishes I think we finished eighth which you know for Worcester was a and I had such such a good group again it had some real sort of real good young players and they'd all been they'd all slightly missed out somewhere else so there was that sort of you know underlying FU type attitude going around they were they were they were blooming good, yeah. So it was that was a real good eye, eye opener. Now watching Saints now, obviously, I understand how they play and the philosophy around, you know, a lot of heads up rugby. If it's on your own half and you know, get it to the width at the right times and all this stuff, and that you play a lovely brand of rugby. What was your philosophy on it? Because you've gone from Worcester, who were, you know, near the bottom of the league, all due respect at the time, to a Saints team that are competing. My philosophy on on coaching is trying to is trying to improve the individual, I think, and collectively the um, the team, obviously, as well. But So we will be a decision-based side, certainly more so than lots of the Prem teams. So we want our guys to get our heads up and play the space and see the space and, and make decisions. Not willy-nilly and certainly not airy-fairy either. I think that's... Uh, that's really important that our decision-making is based on a few little, smaller things so that we can get be more accurate in not overplaying in the, in the back end, kicking on the front foot as well as kicking on. You know, all these little bits that make a big difference. I'm really... What frustrates me is when I when people describe us as, as a Jouet 
team. I hate that. It's not what we are at all. That's Jim, mate. Jim, Jim's lazy. He just, he just throws it out there. That is lazy. Well, we are a decision-making side. You should never pass the ball in a game of rugby unless the guy who you're passing to is in a better position than you are. I really, really hate that whole, oh, they just play. We don't. I think that's, uh, we, we, we attack space, we get our heads up. And fundamentally, we want to go through oppositions. So we want to go through all the little spaces in between each of the defenders. The ball might end up going wide, but all our lines and our highs and our focuses are going through them. And if you're defending tight, then the ball will, will beat you to the edge. I think the beauty of rugby is you can have a contest of, People trying to get their heads up and make decisions and people who, right, we're going to kick this and chase it really flipping hard. And you can have some really good contests. I reckon if everyone did, everyone kicked up in the air and chased it, the the product would be pretty poor. I think if everyone just played the space all of the time and, and all that, I actually think the product would be pretty poor as well. So I think you need those different ways of playing, different mindsets to to get the best out of rugby. Yeah, definitely. Now, talking about other coaches, I'm hearing a lot of Pat Howard influence in how you think. I remember that was Pat's philosophy. If they're tight, let's go wide. If they're wide, let's attack in between them. It literally wasn't it. Exactly. Yeah, and it's common sense. You know, when you hear it and think about it, it is actually common sense, which is, yeah, but you're empowering the players as well. The problem with common sense, it's not very common. Meffin Davis. Exactly. Meffin Davis. <laughs> Guarantee that's a good coach for you worked under Eddie Jones, who divides a lot of opinion in terms of kicking the, the ball a lot and kicking up the air and chasing it. How was that for you under Eddie? You did a summer with him, didn't you, as kind of skills and attack coach? Amazing. Absolutely brilliant. I Because so I went on that tour knowing that I was only doing the eight weeks chunk that we were sort of together because it is so intense. I mean, unbelievably intense environment for the staff probably more so than the players. Everything's done. There's so much kicking underwater so that the players have a nice, easy ride above it. But I I learned so much. He's such a good coach on the rugby pitch. And I took so much out of how he drove intensity, how he got these, how he worked his sessions, how he got the best out of other people. Sometimes how he didn't get the best out of other people as well. But what an experience that was. Some unbelievable players as well. I mean, the back row was Curry, Curry, I think um, Simmons. And it was a sort of a second team-ish sort of, but they were all young. Flip, they were good. They were so good. Look, he is tough to work for. And I knew there was an end date to it. And I think that was probably made it easier for me. But yeah, I absolutely loved it and learned so much. Honestly, I, I can't thank him enough for taking me on that tour. And, and But I couldn't have done much more, honestly. Obviously, there's a lot of changes behind the scenes of coaches. Did he call you back and say, are you interested in coming on full-time? Because they went Simon Amor, they went through quite a few, didn't they? At the end of that tour, there was a an offer of a, of a position. But I was, I think, four years into my coaching. And, and if you go and coach in international rugby, you you basically have four weeks coaching in the autumn. You have five or six weeks coaching in, and you're not really coaching either. You're basically organizing really good rugby players to do what, to do something. You're not coaching. You're not trying to improve them. And um, it wasn't the right time for me. I'd love to do that another time. Absolutely love to do that. But I needed to coach every day. I needed to be on the ground, you know, 
cutting my teeth, doing all those bits, trying to make everyone better every day so that you can just be better at it. It wasn't right for me at that time. It wasn't right for my family. But at some time, I'd love to give it a crack, yeah. Right, I'm thinking doing four weeks in the autumn, six weeks in the Six Nations <laughs> and then four weeks in the summer. It's a lot easier. I'm, I'm Mr. Shortcuts, so, but I hear what you're saying in terms of your development as a coach. Really, do you remember the, the, the old England coach that used to have to come and stand on the side of our sessions and maybe do 10 minutes of skills with one of the backs at the end? It's like, and you're traipsing around the country doing that. It's just... You don't, there's nothing in it. They don't want to be there. Yeah. You don't want to, you know, you're not getting the best out of them. The, the coaches, the club you've gone to, they don't want you there. They don't really, they don't want you there. Yeah, no, exactly. It sort of just wasn't for me at that time. Ultimately, we've seen Eddie leave now. First, do you think it was the right decision for the RFU? And secondly, what do you think went wrong for him? Because the attacking players that he had at his disposal were phenomenal, yet they weren't used to the best of their ability, should we say? It looked like we didn't quite know how we were going to go about it. And fundamentally, it doesn't really matter what you want to do, but you all have to know it and you all have to get behind it. So I think England could have been a really good team kicking the ball in the air and chasing it. I think they could also have been a really good team. I'd love to see that pack. They have so many good ball carriers, but also really good ball players in there. I'd love to see a, a, a nine get the ball up moving fast with that pack just being really flipping direct into those holes and the backs just picking up all the scraps off the back of that. I think that would be a really good attack way of playing. I just think they got a little bit lost. I think they went from a kick game that then they decided to change and ended up going to, into Marcus and Owen and not quite committing to playing a game that Marcus Smith's really good at, but not quite committing to the game that Owen Farrell's really good at either. And I think they probably fell between between two stools. That would be probably my take on it. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. What's your opinion on this Marcus Smith and Owen Farrell axis at 10 and 12? Because you've been there as a, a 10, as a 12. You were someone that flitted around both positions. You know, Faz looks like a world-class 10 when he's in the 10 shirt if he goes low in the tackle. Uh, Marcus Smith, we know, he just looks great every time he's on the field, off the field, touching the ball or not. Do you think it works? Is it something that you'd be willing to back as a 10-12 as a as a coach or would you look for other people? What, what would your 10-12 be or who would you pick at 10? I think they're both really good and I think they're very different. I'm not sure it didn't quite work. I think that's ultimately what comes out of it. I think if you're going to play a ball player at 12, I've actually got to be a ball player and play as a ball player. I think then the ball game moves. I don't think they quite got that right. I think Owen Farrell's playing really well at 10 at the moment as well. I think in a back line, 
you can't just have one creative guy. So you've got one creative guy and all the all the passing comes from that one guy. It's quite easy to defend because as long as you defend, it's, it's probably it's three outs, then you're going to get it right 90% of the time. As soon as you get another threat on the ball in a bat line, one of those outs has got another three outs and suddenly you've got six or seven things to defend. And I I like that as a an attacking mindset philosophically but don't think they quite nailed it on the park so I, I think we I think we struggle for a, a, in England a little bit for ball movement in the backs in the midfield specifically there's a few guys that are proper ball player ball movers some great players out there don't get me wrong but a, a guy who can really see space and play the ball to space opens up lots for other people doesn't it yeah it certainly does you've got a few of them at your place with Dingwall and Furbanking around the squad as well. Um, how do you think they're going to go? And uh, obviously Steve Borthwick, Kev Sinfield, who should be Sir Kevin Sinfield in everyone's eyes. And obviously Nick Evans. I think Nick Evans is a great signing as well. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think what Steve will bring will be that clarity of this is how we're going to play. And I think they'll know, they'll understand what that's going to be. And I think that allows really good players then to go and buy into that and I think that will be the biggest sort of uh, they'll get a fillip from new coaches a new message probably a really clear message in what that is I do think there'll they'll be a, a resurgence maybe probably a bit of a strong word but a fillip you know a, a yeah bump up. I'm with you I think clarity is the key thing and that's the thing everyone's judging by a world cup so we've got the six nations but the six nations is a precursor to the world cup and some people are saying oh he's not got enough time as a coach yourself you know, if you've got a, a tournament sort of 10 months down the line, effectively, which is the World Cup is, or nine months down the line now, you think they've got time to fix the, the things that were going wrong and, and change the philosophy and give clarity to effectively go on and potentially win the World Cup? I think in that instance, you'd have to go after a couple of things that you can really hang your hat on. And knowing or seeing what those two guys have done in the past, I think it'll be a kick and a defence-based back end. You know, that'll be their game in the back end. But, you know, that, that England group, there's so many good rugby players in England. I think they'll probably focus on sort of their kick game and I think they'll probably focus on the defence and the attack will slowly build off the back of that. But I can see it working really nicely. There you go. Sam Vesti says England are going to win the World Cup. We've heard it here first. <laughs> I won't commit you to that. As a coach, then, we've seen law changes. We've, we've seen this whole thing around the tackle law at the amateur level. What are your thoughts on that as a coach? Ultimately, we've got to make the game safer. Is it radical, too radical to go so low? Or what are your thoughts on on the tackle law changes? We don't really know until actually we've seen what that looks like and we could guess and we could talk about it. But what frustrates me is we just look so amateur again because we come up with this new change and then the product of rugby just looks like it's amateur we're come out in the press and said this is what we're going to do and then oh we might backtrack from that one of the world's best players has come out and slammed it there's no sort of taking our game in a positive step into the in the right direction it's it's just poorly sort of put out there and that's sort of a a big frustration of course we want to try and make the game safe as possible you know whether this is right or wrong it's just been put out there so badly that it's just got Critics, it's just got everyone up, hasn't it? It's like you're never going to win from there. That's my that's my frustration with what what we're delivering at the moment. 
as a sport. From our perspective and our listeners, it's a privilege to hear a, a head coach of a Premiership club talk about it. But it's in the news every week. There's red cards. You had one recently with Fraser Dingwall flying out the line and getting a head-on-head collision. You put in hours and hours of work in, no doubt, with the players. But people are like, how are the players not getting the messages? As a coach, when you see that, how do you kind of speak to the lads when they've made the error? And how, how are you going about changing behaviours at the top level? Well, changing behaviours is a constant um, work on for us. Just dropping our dropping at the hips, dropping sort of our arses a little bit and getting that bend that you need, that we want to see in, in rugby. It's flipping tough. I think people don't quite appreciate how fast you have to make these decisions. And a drop in height from a player makes sure to... I think Dingers was a really good example of that. A tiny little drop in height and suddenly he's, he's in slightly the wrong place and it's, it's caught him there rather than in the mid-range. And the change of direction. Some of these guys have such good feet that they're not where you thought they were. And suddenly you're in the wrong place. That's hard. It's a tough one, isn't it? It's a tough one. What do your listeners or what do they talk about? What's the sort of general? It's one of those things where they, you see a, fl- a player fly out the line to try and get man and ball. Uh, and you're putting yourself at risk, aren't you, in reality? Yeah. It's the ones that you have sympathy for the late change of direction when you've not flown out the line. You know, when you're connected with the rest of the defensive line, you, you know, the old adage of you, you go up as fast as the slowest man. Oh, is that a full line? <laughs> yeah. But that, you know, I know that's not coached probably in, in the current game, but I think the frustration is the ones where they fly out the line and they're just running up as fast as they can and then they haven't got time. Well, it's actually their own fault that mm. they haven't got time to adjust. And, you know, it's difficult, isn't it? I was never a low tackler. I'd be sent off three or four times a year the way I tackled because I was I couldn't bend over, I couldn't tackle low. So I just targeted the ball, which sometimes back in the day you'd get wrong and you'd clip them in the chimp, but it didn't matter, did it? No. You had the keg to back it up. Exactly. Sorry. My man. My man. The old squirrel attack. <laughs> exactly. Make it a mall, mate. Make it a mall. Concede 10 metres, but make it a mall, you get the scrum. Do you still coach that? Because that's one of the laws that people get frustrated with, don't they? We don't coach the catch, that sort of catch tackle. I think that's fundamentally... To catch someone, you have to be up, bolt upright as well. So sort of that's, I think hopefully that will fall out again. But I tell you what, we've walked into a few, a few of those in the last few weeks where that has dominated the game. Really, they've you know managed to hold us up, and then suddenly that more, you turn a couple of those over in a game. That's massive. It really is massive. And the flip side of that, you coaching players to try and get their knees down because you see a lot of boys now. If they are, if there is a thought of them getting up, they flick their knees and they're trying to push their knees down as hard as possible because that is the law, right? Yeah, and it's it's ref pretty quickly. He want he doesn't want them all there. The ref he wants the ball to get out of there. So if you can get a knee on the floor, such a funny game, isn't it? <laughs> you talk about a funny game. The trends of, of things, you know, the choke tackle came in probably from Leinster and Ireland initially, and that mm. has obviously led to headshots, not directly, but behaviours of players and trends of players. It is a trend based game, isn't it? In terms of one team does something and then everyone picks up on it and tries to adapt to their strengths. You find that exciting, or is it something that you know, you're always looking for that edge. You got to look for the edge, but the problem is it can't be the can't be the be all and end all of what you're looking for. I think fundamentally, being better at rugby, being better at catch pass, being better at seeing space, being better at footwork into contact. You know, being better is going to be more important in the long run than some of the fads that come into the game and lose out the game. But also at the same time, you can't be behind the eight ball on these things as well. You've got to be able to tactically change as well. So getting the balance there is important. And I would say I'm more along the, rather than changing something each week or following a fad, or I would be more inclined to 
stick to your long-term sort of trying to make people better at rugby. We used to play with Julian White as tight head prop. Best scrummager probably I've ever played with. Worst attacking option I've probably ever played with in the set. Oh, that's the ball. <laughs> we used to cheer Julian White at training when he caught or passed the ball. Now I'm looking at the current game and you've got players like Valparva Ruskin flicking it out the back door. The front rowers these days, there's obviously been a massive trend of coaches upskilling every position, whereas the good old days at Leicester, to be a front rower, you didn't have to catch or pass, you just had to fight and scrummage, right? No. And more. Are you amazed when you look at some of the, the, the skill sets of the players now and compare it to 10 years ago? It wasn't even that long ago uh, and how much the game has moved on? Definitely. I think the biggest influence on our attack at Northampton Saints is how well our forwards are playing. When we play really well, our, uh, the bats get all the plaudits, or probably get all the plaudits and score all the nice tries in the corners, but the forwards, their catch-pass, their... Their decision making at the line to tip to not to tip the out the bat ball you know all those things how well can we do that still moving forward I think it's the fundamentally the biggest sort of improvement that you can make to a make to a team as a coach you get frustrated by certain laws and things that go on is, is the one law that you change as a coach that you'd love just to bin off I would like to see the ball in play more so I'd actually ref the use it five seconds use it Law. So you're up, for, you're up for referees blowing up on that more often? Yeah. As you say, it's a trend-based game, isn't it? As soon as you did it a few times, people would start kicking that little bit quicker. You kick that little bit quicker, that bit earlier, defences aren't set so keenly and so well that there's more disrupted defence and suddenly the ball's in play a little bit more and you probably see a bit more space. And they are doing some of these things, to be fair. Huddles for line-outs. You know, people... T- People cynically taking time out of the game because I just think it's, you know, it's 80 minutes long and there's actually only 40 minutes of 35 minutes of, of ball in play. If we want that to be a spectacle, we need to get we need to get that up higher. Agreed. Mate, it was about 25 minutes when I played because I was I was the best at slowing the game down. Last thing I'll ask then, mate, your head coach at Northampton Saints, you're a Leicester lad through and through. Is Vesti going to ever look to coach Leicester Tigers? <laughs> Is there a chance we'll ever see you back at Mattioli Woods Welford Road? And the Andy Good Sweep. Well, I'm there on this weekend, so you know, <laughs> Andy Good Sweep. You got your own sweep. I've got my own sweep, mate. Andy Good Sweep. There's a there's a picture of me on the wall. It's named the Andy Good Sweep. That's just what I call it. It's called the Champions Lounge. Oh, there you go. Does Austin still call it the house that Austin built? Something like that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Straight back there. But you you're loving your time at Northampton. Yeah, I'm loving my time. I'm loving my time. I, I, I really am. Yeah, loving what I'm doing with a great bunch of lads and. Um, you know, working with Dallas is, I'm really enjoying that as well. Mate, good stuff. Thanks for coming on, pal. Thanks for being so candid and as honest as you can be as a head coach. We call you the bogey monster. We call you other names as well that we can't say on here. So, uh, mate, it's a pleasure to have you on and we enjoy from afar watching the Sam Vesti coach team and while I remember, why are you so silly, Sam? You have three children. (laughs) so silly, Sam. Yes. (laughs) Cheers, mate. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks a lot. Bye-bye.